please take out your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you and open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible that you just grabbed from under that seat in front of you. Take that home with you. It's important to have a copy of God's Word, to be in it every day. More importantly, that it is in you. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we pick up where we left off last week in, towards the end of chapter 19, verse 27, follow along with me there, Matthew 19, verse 27, then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you, what, there, what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many, as, many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first." If you weren't here with us last week, or just as a refresher, understanding what this is on the heels of as we begin our study today, we saw last week Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. And this man came to Jesus, and as it says, he was rich, he was young, and he had power. He had everything that the world says makes you successful. He had attained all of the things that the world claws after and climbs to achieve. Yet he realized there was still something missing in his life. So he came to Jesus, and what is that that I'm missing, and how do I get eternal life? And Jesus explained to him that, bottom line, there can be nothing between you and me. And he told this particular young man that he needed to go and sell all that he had and to follow Jesus. And it told us that he went away grieved because he had many things. And he was not willing to part with those things to follow after Jesus. And Jesus went on to explain a little bit more with his disciples. Now that is an un important to understand as we get into today because notice it says, then Peter spoke up. Surprise, Peter <laughs> is the one that, that then looks at this situation. And after Jesus says all of this thing and even speaking of the fact how difficult it is to get into heaven, as a matter of fact, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter on the heels of that says, okay, we left everything, what's in it for us? And we look at Peter and we, we joke, we laugh a little bit about that, but there's something that I admire about Peter. He asks the questions that every single one of us want to ask, but we'd be too afraid to, right? If we were there, we'd want to know too. And Jesus, and again, I love, I love again Jesus' heart and his response. He doesn't say how typical that you would ask that. No, he addresses it. He answers it, and he answers it. And he will, again, as we continue on through our study, he'll address the heart behind the question as well. But first notice his response. First to the disciples themselves, the 12 that, G that Peter was specifically speaking of there, and Jesus addresses them first, that they will receive special honor that is just for the apostles. He, he says that they will sit on 12 thrones around his glorious throne. Speaking of the millennial kingdom when he rules and reigns, and he says those 12, the, the apostles, will judge the 12 tribes of Israel in that time. 
In Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, Jesus revealing this to, to John, that in the, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and new earth, it says that the wall of the city will have 12 foundation stones, and on them the, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's very special honor given to them, and that's mentioned here. But notice in verse 29, it says, and everyone... That's speaking of universal honor. All who follow Jesus, all who are willing to give up things for the kingdom, for Jesus, for the gospel, as Mark and Luke's account of this put those terms in there as well. Two, they too receive honor. They receive rewards. And that includes all of us today, here today, speaking to us. In addition to eternal life. Not just, again, the reward that we receive or the gift that we receive of eternal life with, with Jesus in heaven forever, but speaking here today. As a matter of fact, Mark's account of this, and I'll read it to you. It's from Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Adds a few phrases to what Matthew paraphrased here. Mark says that Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Not speaking of heaven, but right here, right now. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farm, along with persecutions, that comes too. And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, many have taken this and, and totally twisted the words of Jesus into the prosperity teaching that Jesus will repay you a hundredfold for what you, say, what you give up. So here's what you do. Sell your house, give me all your money, and God will replace your house a hundred times over. <laughs> if you ever hear something like that, run. Change the channel, get off as soon as possible. If that were the case, these guys, these 12 that were hearing that, they, they would have retired fat and happy with you know, the biggest real estate, a hundred houses. None of that. That's not at all what Jesus is speaking of here. Again, using these terms, he's, he's illustrating that you, will, you cannot outgive God. He will be a debtor to no one. Now, does that mean you won't get some type of physical return? In, possibly but he promises a far greater return on your investment into the kingdom. What do I mean? Well, just to name a few of the, the returns that we get on our investment that you can't get anywhere else, you can't invest any other place and get these things. First, joy unspeakable. That's not available in Wall Street. You cannot, you cannot be a, 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 get that investment anywhere. Joy unspeakable. Can't even express the joy. We can try. I remember the, the song I was, yesterday when I'm going through and putting down my notes. The song just kept coming into my head, and I was just enjoying it for a while. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my <laughs> Anybody else remember that? Yeah. I mean, that, where is that? It's in our heart. And how long is it going to stay there? Down in my heart to stay. Yeah. Joy unspeakable. You can't get that anywhere else. Peace. Peace that passes understanding. 
You can't get that anywhere else. You can get peace that you can understand. But the Bible promises peace, peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus said, he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's different. You can't get it anywhere else. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. That is a promise to all who keep their focus on Jesus. You will have perfect peace. Literally, it's peace, peace. I mean, peace squared. You can't, you can't get that anywhere else. Contentment. True contentment. Again, can't get that anywhere else. Paul said, not that I speak of want, for I have learned to be content. In whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And what is that secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment. You can't get that anywhere else. You can't get that promise anywhere else. There's a disclaimer everywhere else. Not in the word of God. I can do all things. Paul is saying, he's not saying I can do all things. I can, I can make every investment that I make in the, in the stock market come out. That's not what he's saying. Just pray beforehand and you'll never lose a dime. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I can be content if I lose it all. Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, you can't get that anywhere else. No one will ever say to Jesus when we stand face to face from it, it wasn't worth it. Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Again, flipping everything upside down. We've seen this as we've watched the teaching of Jesus throughout the entire gospel as we've studied through this. Everything that the world says, seems to say, this is how it works, Jesus says, nope, flips it right upside down. And he goes, notice it says, but many who are first will be last. He addresses that thing. He says, this is a truth. However, it's different than what you're thinking. It's different than what the world says. And then he goes in, chapter 20, verse 1, 4. He's going to explain it here. He's going to use a parable to illustrate the point that he's making now in verse 30. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, 
But each of them also received a denarius. Verse 11, when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am, not, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Here again, Jesus using a parable to illustrate a truth, a heavenly truth. And we see the parable being of a landowner. He owns a vineyard. And as with a vineyard and as with other type of farming things, it's not something that you have employees or laborers all year long full-time employees. There are certain times of the year that you need labor, and this is one of them. It's harvest time. So he goes to the marketplace where there would be day laborers willing to work for a day's wage to go out and work in the vineyard. He finds this group early in the morning, first at sunup, probably 6 a.m., sends them out, and they agree for a denarius. But then he goes back, and it tells us he goes back several times at 9 o'clock, at, at noon, and finding more laborers, standing around idle, sending them out. Finally, he goes out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, finds some more still standing around, and sends them out to work. Now, a couple of, of observations. As I, as I look at this, I, I see a clear illustration in this, that there is a sense of urgency in this landowner. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in a short period of time. The rains come. If the rains come too soon and the work's not done, it, you lose a bunch of the crop. So that's why he's going to find all of these people. Plenty of work, not enough workers. What did Jesus say about the, the harvest that we are a part of, the harvest for souls? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's not a matter of not enough work. It's a matter of not enough workers. And we are to pray that the Lord would raise up workers. But notice also, too, here, it says that there were many that were standing around idle. Standing around idle, thinking, okay, what is it that I can do? And one of the things that I want to point out to you is the last group... The landowner says, why have you been standing around all day? And they said, because nobody would hire us. Nobody would use us. And he says, I will take you. Get to work. <laughs> Go. And if you are here today and, and you haven't gotten involved in serving God because you say, well, nobody would hire me. Nobody would take me. I'm not qualified. I've been told my whole life that I'm not worthy, that I'm, I, I'm not qualified, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not talented enough. I don't have this. Or you look and you say, my past failures, my life that I lived before coming here to this place with this relationship, there's no way God could use me. That's a lie. Why are, God would say to you today, why are you standing around idle? You give that list of excuses, he'd say, get up and get to work. I can use you. I want to use you. We look at this and we say, we say well, I'm not qualified. I, I don't have any experience. Dawned on me this morning when I was thinking about that statement. Has there ever been a man ever that had less experience than Adam And God put him in charge of the whole shooting match. 
Moses. Man, had a speech problem that he was struggling with, and he had killed a man in his past, and God said, you're the man I choose. These disciples, we look at these guys. They weren't the, they weren't the, the A students, and God made them the A apostles. <laughs> he takes that, and that's what, that's what he wants to do with you. He wants to get you. Don't stand around idle anymore. There's work that needs to be done. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The only ability that God looks for is availability. Are you available? Because he wants to use you. Well, we see at the, at the end of the day, it's time to get paid. So he brings all of the, the workers in, but he starts with those who were hired last. And he does that on purpose, because if he brings the ones that were hired first in, they get their denarius, they go away, they don't even know how much the ones that were paid last or hired last get. He brings the ones in who hardly got their hands dirty first. They've only been working an hour. And he brings them in and he gives them a denarius, a full day's wage. Can you imagine that? They gotta be stoked. They, had, they didn't agree on a wage. He just sent them to work. He says, I'll pay you whatever's fair. I'll pay you whatever. And they said, all right. Gives them a full day's wage. Right on, yeah. But then it says that the ones that, got, that have been working all day, as they're watching this go on, they're thinking, man, we got a big payday coming. I mean, if one hour gets a day's wage, we were working 12 hours. Man, let's start probably spending the money already. But they got what was promised, a day's wage. And what do they do? They grumble. First of all, probably grumbling to each other. What? Are you kidding? And then grumbling to the foreman, and then grumbling to the, the landowner himself. Wait, this isn't fair. And we can. I mean, let's, again, we can read this, and we understand where Jesus is going with this whole thing, but put yourself in that position. We worked all day, just like they said, they said here. We were, we were toiling all day while they're standing around idle. Where's the union in this whole thing? This is crazy. This isn't fair. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. <laughs> we can try to wrestle around with this in our own understanding, and again, from a human employee level, this isn't right, this isn't fair. I want what I'm owed. And again, when it comes to a spiritual level, dealing with God, no, you don't. None of us do. And I love this again in the interaction. Look in verse 13. I don't think that this is a small, a small word or a small address. He calls him friend. Friend. The one who came to work for him. Friend. He doesn't, he doesn't belittle him. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't... He doesn't he, Friend, I'm doing nothing wrong to you. Didn't we agree on that? Didn't we agree on this, Denarius? Can't I do what is, I want to with what's mine? I want to give. I want to be generous. And then he says, is your eye envious because I'm generous? Do you have a problem with this as you see this because I'm generous? Jesus is saying, bottom line in this, this problem is your problem. It's a heart problem. Jesus is saying, the landowner doesn't have the problem. 
this worker does. The whole point in this, again, Jesus comes back around in verse 16, the same as the statement he made leading into the parable, the first shall be last and the last first. This is all about grace. Even when it's dealing with rewards, it's all about grace. What we want to call unfair, God calls grace. In our flesh, we want to say, that's not right. But God calls it grace. God blesses according to his will and his pleasure. That's the way he works. And I think if we all get right down to it, we are all extremely happy about that. It's not based on what we deserve or what we've earned. It, it's based clearly and totally and completely on his pleasure. We want, again, we want what we deserve. You know, this whole, you know, get, get, the, get the union involved. Da, 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 because that's based on who we are. But grace is based on who he is. We look at the gifts and we understand as this is given out, and there's many different ways that we can look at this parable. And again, we know that even, even the idea of them working one hour or 12 hours or whatever to earn this denarius it, it, it can't speak completely of salvation because we can't do anything to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift, period. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God. But when we look at this, there is, I believe, some application and some soul searching that we all need to do in this. Because quite frankly, again, when we get there, when we stand in glory, we will be totally renewed. But in our hearts right now as we stand there, I wonder how many of us when we could get a glimpse into heaven and see who's there and we're going, are you kidding me? They're here? How did they get in? Right? Now I know I'm going to get in a real sensitive area right now especially because of the times that we live in and because of what's gone on the last couple of weeks. But let me ask you right now, in your heart right now, today, what would your reaction be if you saw a line of jihad members in heaven? I mean, I know I, I, in, in our flesh our reaction would be, wait a second, I've been serving God my whole life. Okay, they had a deathbed experience. and they, what? Praise Jesus, right? How did they get in there? The same way you and I did. The grace of God. Now, I know this is, this is a struggle right now. How do we as Christians, and how do we as Christian Americans deal with this whole issue? Deal with this whole jihad issue? Well, the Bible's not silent on this. We as, as Americans, we as Christians in America, we need to hold our government accountable. It's their job to identify this enemy and to destroy this enemy. That's their job. And Romans 13 tells us that. For it, that is the government authority, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's government's job. We need to hold them accountable to that. 
But again, that's their job. What's our job? To pray for our enemies. To pray that they realize the error of their ways, that they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's our job. That's what we are to do. Again, how glorious would it be if heaven was full of once former jihad members who repented and came to the saving us. Is it different? Seriously, is it different than the thief on the cross? He was a terrorist in his day. And he's hanging there on the cross and moments before he came to that confession of Jesus, he was mocking Jesus. I mean, we're talking about not, not 11th hour we're talking, I mean, overtime for this guy. As he's hanging on the cross, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Forget you, man. No. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. And I wonder, I wonder when that reward day comes. Can you imagine him? Probably thinking, man, okay, I'm here. Praise God. All right, Jesus, I know. I'm, i got to go over into that corner over there, and I'm just going to sit over there forever. <laughs> and he says, no, hang on a second. I need you to see something. You see this whole line? I know you can't see the end of it, but it's a long line. For the past 2,000 years, your testimony has spoken to all of these people on death row, on, yeah, in, their, in their hospital beds, to know that it's not a life that, that, that the life lived, it's that moment, it, regardless of when it comes, because salvation is a gift, a free gift. And it's not just <laughs> salvation is the gift, the rewards the rewards Jesus is speaking of here, those are gifts. And we can look at those as earned gifts, or we can recognize it for what it is. It's all grace. Every bit of it is grace. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives you the desire. He gives you the ability. He gives you the opportunity. He gives it all out to you. And then when you do it, he says, oh, here, by the way, here's your reward. Wow. Praise God. Well, verse 20, or verse, I'm sorry, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. We mentioned this last week. Jesus has now left the Galilee region. He's on his way to Jerusalem. This is a, this is a one-way trip for Jesus. And he, he, the, the disciples are thinking, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. And that would be normal. They would be understanding that because it's Passover time. we got to get there. we got to get there for Passover. But Jesus explains to them that's not why... He's going. 
He says, behold, understand this. And he lays out what is going to take place. And notice it says in verse 18 that this will happen. He will be delivered. He will be condemned. He will be handed over. He will be mocked and scourged and crucified. We saw back in chapter 16 that Jesus, when he told this to them, he said, this must happen. Now he's saying it will happen. Jesus knew all of this ahead of time, that he would be betrayed that he would be mocked, that he would be beaten beyond recognition, that he would be crucified. Luke tells us in this account, Jesus said, all things written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, everything. Jesus knew it. We ask ourselves, and we can struggle with that, and, and question, no doubt, as the disciples running through their minds, even looking back on through this, replaying it all after the fact, Why? And Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 to render Satan powerless. To free us from slavery to sin and death. We're going to talk about this in a second. The ransom that is paid to free us from that slavery. But also to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But Jesus lays all of this out to them again. And Luke tells us in this account that the disciples understood none of it. They didn't comprehend it. They missed it completely. And that's obvious as we continue in verse 20. Then, after Jesus describes this, why he's going to Jerusalem, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. So again, on the heels of Jesus pouring out his heart, here we see James and John with mom, coming up to Jesus. Now their mother, her name is Salome, she is actually Jesus' mother's sister, Mary's sister, which makes Jesus, James and John, cousins. Hey, cuz, makes sense, right? <laughs> when this kingdom thing happens, let us sit on your right hand and your left hand. We just, Jesus just said, you're gonna sit on 12 thrones, they're just worried about the positioning. And the right and the left hand, immediately sitting right and left hand, is that those seats of power, of prominence, of prestige. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what it is that you are requesting. And they, and they said, oh, he said, can you drink this cup? They said, sure. No idea again what it is that they're saying that they can do. Now, this is not... When he says, you will drink this cup, he's not speaking of the cup that he drank. No one could. No one else could drink the cup of wrath that he drank for you and I. We see that clearly when Jesus prayed in the garden the night that he was betrayed. He said, Father, if there is any other way, may this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. So he submitted to the will of the Father, and he drank every drop 
I'm going to talk about that again in a moment, but so I just want to clear that up. It wasn't like James and John could have stepped into that role. Why? Because he was the blameless, sinless, spotless lamb of God. No one else. He says, you will drink. You will drink from the cup of suffering because again, the persecutions, the suffering does come. James would be the first disciple martyred beheaded. John would be the only disciple that didn't, wasn't martyred for his faith, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. They tried to kill him on several different occasions, and it wasn't because he was running and hiding, but he was persecuted throughout his whole life. Peter tells us that if we should suffer for the sake of righteousness, we're blessed. I wonder if it dawned on James and John's mother, Salome, when she looked upon Jesus on the cross and said, that's what I was asking for my sons? Jesus addresses the situation with them, says it's not up to him. Those signs, those seats have already been assigned by the Father tells us that the disciples, the other ten, when they heard it, were indignant. They were upset. They were mad. I wonder if it ran through Peter's head after he heard the conversation. Man, I'm glad it wasn't me this time that said that. <laughs> I wonder, too, if some of the others were going, they brought mom. Brilliant! Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but they were upset, no doubt, and fighting, and again, as we look at verse 25 and following, again, see the heart of Jesus. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become a great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My, my thought, Jesus pouring out his heart, this is what's going to happen to me when we get to Jerusalem. James and John say, say, okay, can we sit at your right, your left hand in the kingdom? And, and the others start fighting and arguing over all of this stuff. I think Jesus would just go, all right, you're all fired. But he doesn't. Again, the heart that he brings to them, and he says, guys, you got to get this. You have to understand this. Time is short. You want to be first? You need to be last. You need to be a servant. You want the highest seat? You need to be a slave. Live to benefit others. Don't worry about yourself. Place others' needs ahead of your own. Jesus is going to say in a few chapters, when the rewards are handed out, he's going to say, when we all want to hear these words, well done, good and faithful, slave is the word. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, it's not just a giving the command. He's the ultimate example. Notice it says, just as. Just as, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The King of the universe stepped off of his throne and came to serve. 
to give his life, to give it freely. He says, nobody takes my life. I give it. I lay it down to give his life. A ransom, there's that word, a ransom. That means the purchase price of a slave. To give his life a ransom for many. Peter writes in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your former feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We were redeemed. Ran the ransom was paid for us with the blood of Jesus. And there's a word in here it says, give his life a ransom for many. Small word, for, but hugely important. That word for means in place of. As a substitute. He gave his life in place of mine. He stood under the weight of my sin. He stood and took the wrath of God that was due me. Sometimes we can hear these things and like the disciples, we can miss it. We can miss what it is that is being said. He didn't just die for me to express his love. He died instead of me. Because the alternative to him was he eternity in heaven without me. Now that might not sound like a real big deal to you, but it was to him. And that's all I really care about, quite honestly, is that it was a big deal to him. We need to own that. He didn't just die for you, he died in place of you. Because the alternative was eternity without you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for many. How many? As many as who would receive him? John tells us as many as who would receive him, he gave the ability to become the children of God. As many as would receive him. Whosoever that whosoever would re receive him, he would give eternal life. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. But you must come. You must receive. It's just like a pardon. A pardon does somebody no good unless the pardon is received, that it's accepted. If you're here today and you have never accepted the free gift of salvation... If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, you stand condemned. You stand before a holy and righteous God. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Understand, the Bible says that death and destruction are never satisfied. His death in your place does you no good unless you receive it. Because death is not satisfied simply by his death. You need to take it. The wrath of God is satisfied, but you have to take it. You have to step out of the way and allow him to step in, in your case, in your stead. 
Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. But you have to take it. To illustrate that, we see this just the last few verses here in chapter 20. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. These blind men, first we need to understand, they recognized they were blind. They recognized their condition. They could not see, but they could hear. And they heard that Jesus was coming by and they cried out to Jesus. They didn't cry out to anybody else. They didn't search for anything else. They cried out to Jesus. They recognized and acknowledged who he is. The Messiah, the promised one, son of David, that one that is coming, Lord, master of all, crying out to him. And notice what they asked for. They didn't say, we deserve to be able to see like everybody else. They said, have mercy on us. Have mercy. Let us see. And if you are here today, and again, that is you, that you have never taken that step, you need to follow those same steps that are laid out here for us by these blind. You need to recognize your condition. Again, you stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But you can hear. And you need to hear the Holy Spirit speak into your heart this morning. And you need to respond. Cry out to Jesus. Acknowledge who he is, almighty God, the only one who can save you, the only one who can redeem you because he's the only blood, his is the only blood that could pay the penalty for your sin. The wages of sin is death and he died in your place, but you have to receive that and you cry out for mercy. Cry out for forgiveness and he will answer you and give you eternal life. Because it's already been paid. Simply a matter now of you surrendering to that truth and submitting to that. Now, as Christians, the rest of us, what is, does this mean anything to us? Of course it does. We need to daily confess our desperate need for his grace and mercy. We stand forgiven we stand perfect in his sight. We stand clothed in his righteousness. But as we go on every day, moment by moment, we are in desperate need of his continued grace and mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.